He is risen, hallelujah. This is Easter Sunday, and our theme is Short Changing the Resurrection. Did you ever have an event where you go over the details again and again, possibly because what you saw or experienced was just beyond the ordinary? Maybe you checked out what you experienced with others who were with you, who shared the same incident. This is what happened with the apostles who wrote the Gospels and the other disciples who experienced Jesus. We oftentimes think that since God's word is inspired, meaning God breathed, that the words were dictated to the writers and that they should agree in every little detail. What we often fail to realize is that the glory of God's word is that it is dynamic, meaning that God's word as we have it, from Genesis to Revelation, happened as God broke into human history. This is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, interacting and guiding experiences of human beings like Peter, Mary, John, Mary Magdalene, James, Lydia, Phoebe, Paul, and others, including you and me. God's purpose is that he reveals himself to his creation in history and then in, with, and under his word. We have in it some the historically accurate, verbally verifiable, and eyewitness excellent accounts of people who knew, followed, and loved Jesus, who started out doubting, fearful, ignorant in many respects, and spiritually weak, before, during, and after the resurrection, yet aided by God's Spirit, which filled them, brought them to memory of everything that hey, they had experienced in Jesus short three-year ministry as they experienced his teaching, life, death, and resurrection. So there is nothing magical about the transmission of these factual events and experiences. There is no mystery about their occurrence. The mystery, what is hidden from our eyes, is the full majesty and glory and grace of God dwelling among us as it did with the disciples in history in Galilee with a group of people, fulfilling a promise that was made since the Adam and Eve disobeyed their creator from the very beginning, for we were not alive at that time. This is human history coming together as the scenario for a greater history, known in theological circles as Heilsgeschichte, salvation history, meaning that all history is salvation history. The history that is going on in the world right now is caught up in God's definition of history, which is his saving work to save this world. So you can be assured that the disciples all experienced the trial, death, and resurrection of Christ, and what they wrote and how they wrote was definitely after the conclusive experience that was the ground level baseline of interpretation of everything that happened, the resurrection. None of what we read, no faith that we have, no holy scriptures would appear if there were no resurrection. It is the baseline for everything. If the experience of this concrete action by God in human history that solidified the faith of those who saw it, who saw and recognized the fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic passages promising salvation, cemented God's salvation of grace and forgiveness by raising this Jesus from the dead as the acceptable once and for all sacrifice for sin. It replaced the Old Testament sacrifice, temple worship, and mediation by priests. 
In most cases, our resurrection narratives customarily read on Easter Sunday were actually written down after the church was in full movement, growing, being persecuted, as the message of salvation and the resurrection was a living word, preached and celebrated in the sacraments. But as the gospel was written, each author determined how to best tell the fact of the resurrection. They do not differ in the historical actions of the accounts, although in some cases their timelines might not be completely coordinated given calendric differences and stylistic nuances. So some gospel writers like John give us full glorious details, while others like Mark seem to shortchange the resurrection story. And we love John, don't we? In fact, John's dedicates almost two-thirds of his gospel to the last week of Jesus, more so than Matthew, Luke, or Mark. His telling of the resurrection is what we have heard year after year after year, and we probably know it by heart. It's the go-to text, much like the Christmas story from Luke 2, which says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taxed. Well, John begins the resurrection story with now the very early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, dot, dot, dot. But the Easter account we don't read is from Mark, chapter 16. And this is the account we are reading today, because it's different. Because this Easter is different, isn't it? So let's dig into Mark's account. If you have your Bibles, get them out. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Mark's account of the resurrection is short. It's only eight verses long. It reads, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought aromatic spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week at sunrise, they went to the tomb. They had been asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled back already. Then as they went into the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples, even Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. Then they went out and ran from the tomb, for terror and bewilderment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. We need to explore something interesting, an interesting background to what we have in our Bibles, and particularly this text. I introduced the sermon this morning in a particular way that highlighted the fact that our gospel writers wrote differently and the reasons for their doing so. The history of transmission of the whole Bible is a long, fairly complicated, but interesting history. To simplify it, when a gospel or letter was written, it was circulated and used in congregations all over the Mediterranean from Egypt to modern-day Turkey. Photocopiers and electricity were expensive in those days. No, wait, hadn't been invented yet. So transmission was done by hand. And later, centuries by monks in monasteries. 
Sometimes early transcripts had marginal notes of explanation done by the copier. According to the need and use in congregations covering large geographical territory from Latvia to England to the Middle East, copies were made and distributed based on the earliest texts and copies of those texts. In our scholarly world today, through archaeology and text analysis, we have categorized transmission history by date according to the material they were written upon, from oldest scrolls, papyrus, uncials, minuscules, parchments, and the location that they were found. That shows a distribution geographically of where the texts were found and the copies as well. This transmission history alerts theologians and scholars to the fact that some copiers or editors during the process of transmission made remarks or additions to a text at a later date that were not found in the earliest manuscripts. In a nutshell, whereas Mark chapter 16 has 20 verses, you will note that your Bible probably has a note stating that verses 19 through 20 were not found in the oldest manuscripts, and that in this case, copiers who knew and had copied the other Gospels' accounts, probably somewhat cursorily, filled in details that Mark was lacking. But since there were enough of these later century copies, they warranted including verses 9 through 20 as an alternative ending. It does not mean that the text was corrupt or not factual. It does not mean that the resurrection didn't happen. It does not mean that Mark didn't write the gospel. It simply means that history, a 2,000-year history, happened in real life as texts of God's salvation multiplied and were being used in churches all over the world. So the original text that Mark wrote was in all actuality chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, which leads us to the subsequent question, why did he write it like this? Why is it so short, short-changing the resurrection story? It leaves the women leaving the scene afraid and bewildered. We look at three possibilities. Maybe the last leaf of the manuscript was lost prior to the text being copied. Well, that probably wasn't so because scrolls were still used at the time of Mark, and leaving off the end of a scroll would mean leaving off the end of what that scroll was written on, the roll part, and it would have been noticed and noted that it was missing something. Nothing to this was ever stated. Well, then we can also say maybe Mark didn't finish the gospel, but the resurrection being the cement that held the whole story of salvation and the life of Jesus together, it wouldn't seem possible or plausible that Mark would intentionally leave out details or leave out the resurrection or parts of it. Mark intentionally, the third possibility, Mark intentionally ended the gospel here in an open-ended fashion. Mark writes quickly, it's the shortest gospel, and he moves continually fast through the relating events in the life of Christ from chapter 1 to chapter 16. And we have to consider what was Mark's goal in ending the story as he did, so different from the others. If we take a look again at the story, remembering that the gospel was written for a determined audience in mind. Mark's gospel was intended for a Roman audience. It was a gospel written for the non-Jew. 
This gospel would be the only document that these people would be reading. They weren't receiving a complete Bible from Amazon in the mail so that they could compare accounts. But even if they did have knowledge of the other gospels, this version makes them stop and think because it is so different. Its form is cutting and edgy. It's sketchy, seemingly incomplete, although factual. So now you are faced with this inconclusive narrative. It makes you feel uneasy. It ends with fear and bewilderment. But that's not how it should end, should it? Mark's form is powerful. It's much like an Alfred Hitchcock movie ending. There is no denouement. There is no resolution to the drama that kind of gently brings you back down to earth. It leaves you at the top of the story. Jesus is alive. We're not seeing him. And the women go away afraid and bewildered. But it draws you into the story. You're left standing there. Perhaps the women have already fled and you're the one looking at the angel. Leaving it open-ended hints at the fact that the story is not ended, that it is current. It draws you into the text. You are part of the story. In other words, it leaves you with an open question to consider in a way that just doesn't make this a good story or tale. It asks, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with what you have just been told? It sucks you in to all that went on the days before, Jesus' teaching, his suffering, his crucifixion. It makes you think of the statement that repeats in Mark, Who is this man that has such authority? Who is this man that teaches with authority? Who is this man that commands the waves to cease and the, and the ocean be calm? Who is this man that bids Peter to walk on the water? The testimony of the centurion, surely this was the Son of God. What will you do with it now? Do you believe? Do you accept Jesus in his suffering? In what the Old Testament says about him? In the miracles that he did? In the healing that he performed? Or are you afraid, like the women, because you need to see visible proof? Didn't he tell you that he would rise again after three days? Did you believe him then? If you believed him when he was with you and taught with you, if you believed the promise and the fulfillment as he lived it out among you in history, would you not believe the angel's words now? If you did not accept Jesus in his suffering, you will not see him in his glory. If you did not realize who he was while he was among you, the resurrection will make no difference at all. You will still not see him. All he did and said was done not to make you believe, but rather to complete and seal the faith in the promise that you already had received through the Old Testament law and the prophets. This was the fear and bewilderment that the women had. This is what they feared. What to do with Jesus. The Greek word for fear is phobos, we get it when we talk about a phobia, a fear of something or someone. But the word in the Greek text here in Mark is not phobos, it's tromos. It is used to describe the anxiety of a person who distrusts their ability completely to meet all the requirements, but religiously does their utmost to fulfill their duty. 
This is the fear that looks at the consequences of what all this means, if it were not true. The terror that asks the question, what will be of me if this is not true? I don't meet all the requirements. I'm not able to completely. And they are also bewildered, which in Greek is ecstasis. In a way, yes, meaning high, but in Greek meaning being thrown into fear and heightened awareness that this is out of place, beyond the wildest dream. It can't be true. It just doesn't stand to reason. So the women are all mixed up. On the one hand, in fear they're considering what are the consequences of this if it's not true. And on the other hand, they're saying, this is completely amazing, and I want to believe it. Believe it. It's a dream come true. So basically, Mark's question is this. Jesus is risen. Here's this fact. Deal with it. How will you deal with it? There is no doubt. It is a fact in history, and your answer will determine the ultimate outcome of you in the future in this kingdom reign of God. This is your decisive moment. What are the consequences, on the one hand, if this is not true? For on the one hand, if you do not accept the testimony of the prophets, the ministry and suffering of Christ and his resurrection, you are still in your sins. You are not forgiven. You are still at enmity with God, and you are judged in your sins and unrighteousness. And, worse yet, you make God out to be a liar, because what he has done in history through the sending of his son and his resurrection, you do not accept this as the truth. You are eternally lost. You cannot believe only in part. Or you can't believe only part of it. You cannot believe that Jesus was a man of God who prophesied, healed, and was basically a good person and still denied the resurrection. Equally, you cannot believe that he was raised from the dead, yet not believe that he was the Son of God. You cannot pick and choose one without the other. That's what Mark is getting at. So the women's fear in this Mark's gospel is, what are the consequences if this is not true? Well, later in history, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians and puts it this way, the same way Mark is entertaining this question of fear. Paul says, and if Christ was not raised from the dead, your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. Furthermore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. The other thing, though, is that the women were bewildered. So if, on the other hand, you are bewildered like the women, that this is totally a dream come true, beyond your wildest dreams, then you accept everything that was said both in the Old Testament law and prophets and in the fulfillment of these in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as God's action in history of the salvation of all who believe. Then you are indeed in ecstasy. In the same letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preach to you, that you received and on which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold firmly to the message that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as though to one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And so for both Mark and Paul, they both ask you, how do you finish this story? What is your resolution? Do the consequences of not believing this grip you with the reality that if you do not accept Christ in his suffering and what the Old Testament and law and prophets prophesied, you cannot see him in his glory? Or has Christ appeared to you? Is this your Christ, the Son of God, whose life, death, and resurrection has been accepted as your righteousness done for you, and because of whom your sins are now forgiven and also your broken and waywardness for God, and now you have eternal life with your Father who created you from the beginning, the fulfillment of a promise and a dream come true? Then this Christ is for you. The story includes you. The story does not exclude you from the kingdom reign of God. Is this the man, truly the Son of God, as prophesied, as fulfilled, as lived, as died, and now as resurrected for your salvation? Then go, tell his disciples, go tell the world that he is risen, just as he said, Alleluia.